The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Son, 
Lord, your word will move in power in and through our lives. That we can be the ambassador, ambassadors that you have called us to be, to go out into this uh, dark world and be a shining light. And that, Father, through our obedience, Lord, uh, your spirit will work in people's lives to draw them to you. Father, again, we just thank you for all your good gifts. and recognize that all of them do come from you. And Father, help us also to never forget and, never, and always remember, Lord, these gifts are, are not ours, but they are yours. And that you uh, want to use them through us in serving other people. Father, continue to hum- humble our hearts and to make us uh, have a desire obedience in our lives that you may be glorified through. Father, do this and we will praise your name for it. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. I guess this is the, uh, the, the one Sunday of the year in which we could rightly be referred to as the frozen chosen, right? We've taken um, the first couple of Sundays for the year to uh, spend some time together uh, looking at uh, sort of the identity and foundation of who we are as Grace on the Ashley. It's important, I think, uh, critical, in fact, for a church to know who they are, uh, to know what they're about. It's important for us to understand who we are. It's important for us to know who God has made us to be and what He's placed us here to do. And it's really important for us to know that in order that we might articulate it to other people. When somebody comes along your pathway at work and asks you, you know, tell me about your church. What is, where do you go to church? What is, what is that church about? Um, we need to know what to say. We need to know how to describe to them who we are, how to describe to them what it is that we do and what it is that we seek to accomplish. There are churches all over the place. Uh, here in our city, there are churches, it seems, every um, every half mile or so as you drive around. And so uh, we, we can't settle for answers that are general, answers like, well, we, we want to just serve God. Well, everybody wants to serve God. Or we exist for the Great Commission. Well, everybody would tell you that they exist for the Great Commission. Well, not everybody, but most. We need to know specifically what is it that, that is unique about the DNA of this church. What is it that's particular about this body of believers, this group of people that have been assembled by the Lord in this place, in this context, at this time, with this set of gifts, with this set of passions? What is it that that God has set us out to do that defines who we are? And so we've tried to, as leadership, uh, spend some time and effort in the last couple of years understanding this ourselves and then trying to find ways to clearly communicate that to you. And so last week and this week are uh, some efforts on our part to do that. If you were not here last week, uh, there is a handout that looks like this that is right on the uh, sort of the rim of the sound booth in the back that contains the sort of the notes from last week. Last week we looked at the issue of mission and values. We sort of reminded ourselves what our mission statement is, the sort of the succinct simple statement that describes what it is that we're about. And I know that you've all got that memorized by heart at this point. So we're going to have a little quiz. We're going to see if you can say it with me. 
Um, this is going to be an open book quiz because it's going to be on the screen. But I want you to say it with me. The mission of Grace on the Ashley is we exist or we are satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. That phrase is simply a, another way of articulating the specifics of the Great Commission in our context. This is what we do. We are here to satisfy spiritually hungry people with God's all-sufficient Word. And last week we spent a good bit of time breaking out what that looks like and what it means. And you can find that information um, sort of in abbreviated form on that sheet, or you can go back uh, to our website and listen to last week's message. That is our mission. It describes what we are set out to do. But we also talked about some values, and values are important. These are the sort of the, the things that, that exist in our hearts that matter the most to us. These are sort of the shared convictions that we have that, that drive what we do and why we do it. And we've sort of articulated those by saying that our, our values are, 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 are sort of this list of things. You can put the whole list up there. Um, are, they're delighting in truth. We are a group of people who, who care about the truth. That matters to us. And it doesn't just matter to us, but we find joy and pleasure in studying God's truth and in communicating God's truth and in trying to live out God's truth. We delight in truth. It matters to us. And so everything we do is going to be in some way permeated by truth, by God's Word. We're also a group of people who cares about investing in others. We, we care about other people besides ourselves. It's a value that we hold. And we're also people who are generous. We, we, we like to give, and we're going to talk some about that today uh, in, in way of measures. <clears throat> and then finally, we're, we, we've captured the last value as growing to go. We're, we're a group of people who care about spiritual growth, and we understand that spiritual growth is not an end in itself, but it simply becomes sort of the springboard by which we launch out into the world and we go to other people and reach them with the gospel. These are the values that guide us, or the values that drive us, the shared convictions. It, it answers the question, why do we do what we do? We do what we do because these things are our values. This morning we move to sort of a third piece of the puzzle, if you will, of, of church identity, and it's called mission measures. You see, if we're going to be setting out to accomplish a mission, we need to have some sense for what does that look like at the end. I introduced this illustration last week by telling you <clears throat> that uh, I live in a house filled with Legos. If you've got little boys, you understand Legos. Even little girls enjoy Legos. Um, and uh, Legos are a regular thing in our home. If you go in my son's uh, the room where all of his toys and stuff are on any given day, uh, the odds are you're going to be tiptoeing through the room dodging Legos that are spread everywhere. You've got these sets that are that are uh, sort of in pieces. You see, he likes to take those little minifigures out and then leave the work on the floor. Um, and so we have to constantly get after him. Okay, you got to go dedicate the time, build that ship, build that thing. But we found in the process of, of helping him along the way with that, that uh, the box is important. The Lego box is important. The Lego box is important because it has a picture on the front, kind of like the, the box there, the Millennium Falcon. You always keep the box because when you open the box and you spread out the pieces, it kind of looks like this in your house, right? And if you just have a table full of that and you set out to try to build that Millennium Falcon without the box, without the picture, without the instructions, Lord only knows what you'll end up with. But as you start to build, you've got the instructions and you've got the box. And the box 
gives us a picture of what all those pieces should look like when they come together at the end. And it becomes for, for us, as we're building the, the Millennium Falcon, sort of a measuring stick for us. As we're building, we're looking at what we're building, and we're looking at that picture, and we're constantly asking the question, okay, does this look like that? Is it looking more and more like that? Because this is our, our measure. That picture on the box gives us a measure that guides us as we do the building. And it gives us a sort of a, a snapshot or a portrait of what the end result looks like. It's important to know what you're building so that as you're building, you can know if you're on track or not. Does that make sense? If we say that as a church, our mission is to be satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God, we need to have some sense for what does that look like at the end. What does a, a satisfied, spiritually hungry person look like? What is the the snapshot picture of that? What does that look like at the end so that we can know as we're trekking along, are we we progressing towards that? Is this the kind of person that is being produced as they spend time embedded in the life of this body? It also becomes a personal measure because as I'm walking through my faith and I'm walking it out week to week, month to month, I can look back at this picture and say, is my life looking more and more like this? Is it looking more like this? I measure myself by it. And so what we're going to do this morning is kind of sort of sketch out that picture of mission measures, we're calling them. Simply, it's the, the front box of the Legos. It, it's, it's another way of answering the question, in our context, what does a mature disciple look like? So that we can measure ourselves by it. We've come up with sort of five words that describe this for us this morning. And and I want you to try and get these words in your head. And uh, this morning we're going to just kind of sketch them quickly. Because there's five, and you know it would be impossible to do a five-point sermon in the time we have left. So we're going to sketch it, because many of these things are obvious, and we'll sort of parachute in and focus on a couple things that we haven't talked about recently, because some of these we've talked about recently. You know, there are times when people ask me, um, is it really biblical to be measuring ourselves by, by standards? There's a movement that's kind of blown through, and I think, praise the Lord, sort of blown out now in the last ten years. Uh, it goes by different names called the Free Grace Movement. Uh, sort of, um, if, you, if you want sort of a picture person to go along with leadership of that movement, um, you could think of a guy by the name of Tullian Tavigian. Is related to, I think, the grandson or something of Billy Graham. Is that right? He was pastoring Presbyterian Church in Florida for a while until his spiritual life imploded and lost his ministry, uh, sadly. But that movement was built around the idea that grace is free and we should really never be evaluating or measuring ourselves by any standards because any sort of measurement would be deemed by that movement as legalism. It's legalism, and we want to do everything to get rid of legalism. We are free from the law. We shouldn't be measuring ourselves by any sort of standards because standards are are, are just a way of imposing legalism, that we live in free grace. We just live in the freedom of grace and live as we please. Well, when you you buy into that sort sort of understanding of what the spiritual journey looks like, then you end up imploding. 
We reject that because the scriptures teach us that it's right and it's good and it's, and it's spiritual to look at ourselves and evaluate where we stand on a regular basis to measure ourselves. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Therefore, uh, lest anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, you might want to take a look at your life on a regular basis because you might just find that you think you're something that in the end you turn out not to be. He says that in a different way, in a different place. When he says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Jesus talks about a tree being known by its fruits. And, and the idea is that you can look at a tree and you can see what's going on in the tree and you can determine whether it's a good tree or a bad tree by what it produces. And the whole insinuation is that that's our lives. We look at our lives, and it's right, it's good, it's healthy to examine ourselves, to evaluate what's, what's happening in our lives, how we're living, how we're thinking, how we're behaving, because that says something to us and to others about where we stand in our walk and whether we're mature or not. And so when we talk about measures, I believe we're doing something that's good, that's wholesome, that's right, that's necessary for the Christian life. And so we've come up with some words that sort of help us understand what does the spiritually satisfied life, the mature disciple, look like. Let me give you the first one. The first word is rest. It's rest. I love the word rest. You like the word rest? I want you to do me a favor. Just take a big deep breath right now. Doesn't that feel good? You know, we live lives at an incredibly busy pace. And life can be maddening at times. And one of the things that is missing from so many of our lives is simply rest. Physically, for sure. But I'm not speaking specifically of of physical rest here when I talk about a mission measure of rest. We, come, we build this out of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Something that Jesus said. He said this. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, say it with me, rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, say it with me, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The contemporary English version translates one piece of that verse as this. It says, if you're tired from carrying heavy burdens, come to me, and I'll give you rest. So many of us in our spiritual lives, we lack rest. Rest for our souls. And when I talk about rest for the soul, I'm not talking about sleep, although sleep is important. When I talk about rest for the soul, and I think when Jesus speaks of rest for the soul, he's talking about a release from weariness rather than a release from exertion. It's not that the the soul at rest is not moving. It is moving. It's just not weary. It's just not frenetic. It's just not scattered and anxious and fearful. It's not the life lived with blood pressure that's through the roof. 
It's the life that's marked by, a, as John Gill says, a peace of conscience, an ease of mind, a tranquility of the soul. If you've met people in your life who are mature disciples, people who, who live out the spiritually satisfied life, you see them when they go through chaos maintain a peace in their soul, a tranquility of mind, a calmness in their spirit that even though things are happening all around them or even perhaps happening to them, there's a rest for their soul in the midst of it. It's something that Christ gives to those who walk with Him. And it's lived out by frequent exercise. Interesting that we would say that rest is lived out by exercise. But it is. A commentator by the name of Robert Robertson said this. It isn't, speaking of rest, this picture of spiritual rest, it's not the lake locked in ice that suggests rest, but the river moving on calmly and rapidly in silent majesty and strength. It's not the cattle lying in the sun, but the eagle cleaving the air with fixed pinions that gives you the idea of rest with strength and motion. In creation, the rest of God is exhibited as a sense of power which nothing wearies. When chaos burst into harmony, so to speak, God had rest. It's a beautiful description. The satisfied life, the mature life, is not a frenetic, stressed out, anxious, fearful life. It's a life that's marked by peace and confidence and faith and hope, regardless of what's going on on the outside. I'll give you three simple thoughts underneath rest. What does this look like? Practically speaking, rest looks like first this. Resting in the assurance of Christ's finished work on the cross and trusting our sovereign God to save us. Resting in the assurance of Christ's finished work on the cross and trusting in our sovereign God to save us. Romans chapter 3 speaks to this. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Further on, he says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Spiritual rest begins with resting in the reality that I don't have to work to earn God's favor in my life. That I don't have to run about frenetically trying to do good works in order for God to love me. In order to gain God's pleasure on my life. One of the ways that you can run yourself ragged spiritually and run your soul ragged is to run around serving and doing and acting in certain ways because you think you need to do that for God to love you or for God to be gracious toward you or for God to save you. We need to understand first and foremost that we don't have to earn our salvation. That God's love isn't up to be earned. It is a free gift of His grace to all who come to Him in repentance and faith and trust. He gives freely. We don't act, we don't serve, we don't work for the kingdom in order to earn anything from God. God gives graciously to us all things necessary for life and for godliness can rest on that. We can trust in that. We can find peace for our soul at that. 
when sin creeps into our lives and we know that we've fallen short of God's glory. We don't have to anxiously wonder, did did God stop loving me when I did that thing? Have I maybe fallen out of His kingdom somehow by my behavior? No, we rest in the security that God's love and His grace and His salvation, once given, is never taken away. We rest in that. We rest our souls in that. We trust Him to save us. We don't run around frantically trying to impress Him or other people. The second thing rest looks like is it looks like abiding in God's Word. It looks like abiding in God's Word. The restful soul is the soul that abides in God's Word. The satisfied life is marked by an an, an intentional escape from the rat race of life, reading, meditating, praying God's Word. We see it in Psalm 119, verse 9 and following. How can a young man keep his way pure? He does it by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will not forget your word. For the soul at rest, God's word is not an afterthought. It's in the forefront. You see, the the soul at rest understands that it's the word of God that becomes for us the doorway for strength, hope, love, peace. Because it's through the word of God that we encounter God himself. And as we abide in God's Word, we abide in the God of the Word, who through that process grants us the things that bring rest to our soul. Peace, hope, faith, trust. The grace that we need to face the things that are happening in our lives. So the restful soul is the soul that abides in the Word of God. The soul at rest also is a third thing. It's a soul that experiences God's peace amidst the chaos of life and world events. What does a restful soul look like? It looks like someone who's at peace even when life is chaotic around. We live in a world that is full of chaos. We live in a world that that seems to run from one crisis to the next. If you turn on television news, you just see crisis after crisis after crisis. All the things that we have to be anxious about. All the things that we have to be worried about. All the things that are going on. We have to be concerned. We're told about uh, a crazy little dude in, in North Korea who might launch rockets at us at any minute and blow us all to smithereens. We're told we should be anxious about that. We're told that at any moment the financial bubble is going to burst and you've got to watch out because you never know when your retirement account is going to hit the tank because the stock market's going to drop. It's a crisis right on the horizon. We're told that prices are going up and wages are going down. We're told that our jobs are not secure and that companies are cutting back. There's always crises all around us. We're told that there are terrorists roaming the world who might pop up at the mall when we're there and start shooting or at the movie theater or somewhere else. And, and it's just crisis after crisis after crisis. And all of those things that happen around us, and those are just the general things, there are more specific crises that exist in your life and in your particular world that are real and close to home for you. They're external. There are things that are happening around you, things that even happen to you. 
chaos that comes into our lives through circumstances. The restful soul is the soul that isn't existing absent all those things. It's the soul that has peace in the midst of all those things. It's the soul that says, you know what, life around is chaotic, and life has given me a thousand reasons to be anxious and afraid. But God has given me better reasons to rest and to be at peace and to trust Him in the midst of all the chaos. Because I understand that He's in control of the chaos, that He's bigger than the chaos, and He resides inside of me. And so I have no reason to be afraid. And I have no reason to be anxious. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul writes, Don't be anxious about anything. About anything. Don't be anxious about anything. What does that word anything cover? It covers everything. Anything covers everything. And I know in the back of your mind you're thinking, but Greg, you don't understand this. Fill in the blank. No, I don't understand fill in the blank in your life, but I understand anything. And anything covers that fill in the blank in your life. Do not be anxious about anything. Why? In everything, I pray and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God who is bigger than the chaos. You just take the chaos and you bring it to God. And when we do that, we're told the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Do you understand that? When the chaos erupts around us and when the chaos happens to us, we gather up all that chaos and we bring it to our God who is bigger than the chaos. And when we do that, He then supplies to us a peace that passes understanding. He gives rest to the soul. The mature disciple has a soul at rest. The mature disciple experiences God's peace in the midst of chaos. And in the midst of crazy stuff in the world, crazy stuff in the life. It's the opposite. Rest is the opposite of working frantically. Rest is the opposite of living at a frenetic pace so Scripture is squeezed out. Rest is the opposite of living a life filled with anxiety and fear and confusion. The mature disciple, the soul that is spiritually hungry yet satisfied, is the soul that's at rest. So when we think of our Lego box of mission measures, we want to look first at this issue of rest. How about you this morning? Do you have a soul that's at rest? Let me give you a second word. Walk. Second word, walk. Although the spiritually satisfied life looks like resting, it also looks like walking. When we talk about rest, we're not talking about sleep. When we talk about rest, we're not talking about spiritual sleep. We're talking about a peace of mind and a peace of heart in the midst of walking, in the midst of doing things, in the midst of action. The spiritually mature is not the person who's spiritually lethargic or spiritually stagnated. Absolutely the opposite of that. The spiritually mature is active. He's walking. She's doing things. What kind of things 
is she doing? She's doing a life of motion, meaningful motion. The, the, the mature life, the spiritually satisfied soul, is not simply a life filled with intellectual knowledge. It is a life that is filled with intellectual knowledge which results in action, in living, in walking, in doing. Let me give you three simple thoughts under this point. When we talk about walking, we talk about, first and foremost, walking in obedience to God's Word, not being a hearer only. James 1.22 and following, but, the, but be doers of the Word and not, what? Hearers only. You see, doing, not just hearing. Those who just hear deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in what he's doing. The spiritually satisfied life looks like someone who is walking and doing what they know. Not just hoarding intellectual information to see how smart they can get, but learns and studies in order to act. It's a life of walking. It's not simply about how much we know. We're going to hear a whole lot more about this pretty soon, I think, aren't we, Pastor Frank? So I better not say too much about that. But when we say that this is one of our mission measures, what we're trying to communicate is that we at Grace on the Ashley are not just about trying to create people who are simply filled with knowledge. We want to produce people who know God's Word, but who know how to put God's Word to work in their lives. Who know it and do it, not who just hear it and know it alone. Not just people who talk the talk, but people who walk the walk. We're not just trying to hoard theology, but what we're trying to do is produce theology in action. And that looks like a life of obedience. It looks like a life of obedience. The mature life, the spiritually satisfied soul, knows God's Word, and they do it. They live it. They act it. Obedience matters. That's the first piece of walking. The second piece of walking is employing spiritual gifts in the life of the body of Christ. To walk looks like taking the gifts that I have, that God has given me uniquely, and employing them in the body of Christ. Romans 12, verses 4 and following, Paul writes, For as in the body, as, excuse me, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them with prophecy in proportion to our faith and service and serving. Uh, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I'm going to spend a lot of time with the text, but just to simply note that what Paul is saying is that when God assembles a body, he uniquely gifts the individuals who make up that body with things that they can do within the body, that contribute to the big picture of what's happening in that crew, so to speak. That God doesn't, doesn't assemble groups of people who have no gifts. All of us are equipped to do something 
within the context of the body. For some, it's, for me, it's doing what I'm doing right now. That's what God has gifted me to do in the life of this body. There are things God has gifted you to do that need to be employed in the life of this body. And this, this spiritually satisfied life looks like walking that out in the body of Christ. looks like taking whatever it is that God has given you to do and doing it. Not just thinking about it. Not just praying about it. But walking it out. Putting feet underneath it. Doing it. One of the great things that I've had the joy to see in in recent months in the life of our church is people who have come to me and said, you know what, God's convicted me that I need to be doing something, and here's what I think I'm gifted to do. How can you help me do it? We put feet underneath spiritual gifts in some people's lives recently, and it's a great joy as a pastor to see that. And it's a sign of the spiritually satisfied soul to put feet underneath that and to, to deploy gifts. A third thing underneath this walking is serving Christ by serving others. Let me just skim this by reading what Jesus had to say in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. If our Lord and Savior came not to be served, but to serve others, then that serves as a template for us as we walk out our faith. The spiritually mature person The satisfied soul is a soul that loves to serve other people. It's a soul that cares about other people. It's a a soul that sees needs and is, is joyfully motivated to go after and do what they can to meet that need. That's part of walking out our faith by serving other people. So we talk about measures. We're talking about a soul that's at rest. We're talking about walking out our faith in these kinds of ways. And then we talk about love. Loving. Loving is a third measure. Resting, walking, loving. The satisfied soul is marked by love for our brothers. A love for our brothers and for our neighbors. Begins by loving one another in authentic relationships. Jesus said this in John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. What is the primary way that lost people will know that you and I belong to Christ? The primary way lost people will know that we belong to Christ is by how they can observe us loving each other. That's what Jesus said. It's not by how well we can debate them in a theological match. It's not by how well we can deploy our apologetics against all of their rebuttals, but it's primarily by how much we love each other. This is a major distinctive of Christians throughout time and around the world. Christians, true believers, are known for loving one another. They were known for that in the first century. You walk through the book of Acts and you kind of look at what the, the, the lost world around the early church is saying about them. They're saying these people love each other. They're, they're, they're selling their possessions to meet each other's needs. They're gathering together and they're greeting one another with a holy kiss. They can't stop getting together because they love each other. They can't stop caring for each other because they love each other. Something is weird about those people. Because normal people don't look like that and don't act like that. Christian people do. We understand because God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
that God's love toward us has been so lavish in sending His Son that we find joy in lavishing love on other people. The satisfied soul loves other people in authentic relationships. And when we talk about love, we're not talking about a mushy-gushy feeling. We're talking about a decision, a choice to act lovingly toward each other. Any body of believers, any group of people as, as varied and diverse as this one are going to at times get irritated with one another and get agitated with one another and get un- under each other's skins and do things to offend one another. That's not the point. The, where love comes into the picture is we love one another and we make a conscious choice that regardless of how you treat me, regardless of whether you offend me or don't, offend me, whether you irritate me or you don't irritate me, whether I get under your skin or I don't, we have a common decision to act lovingly toward one another, to care for one another's needs regardless of those things. Satisfied soul is a soul that exudes love for one another. But that love doesn't just stop there. It extends out beyond the body of Christ to all who cross our paths. The satisfied soul doesn't just love the body of Christ. She or he loves anyone who comes across their path. Our neighbors in the neighborhood, our family members who don't know Christ, the people that we run across just in the randomness of life, when they encounter us, they walk away from the satisfied soul who loves, saying, you know what, I don't know that person, but I think they care about me. Jesus tells a story in the Gospel of Luke about a good Samaritan. Do you remember the story? We don't have time to go through the whole story. But you can read it for yourself in the Gospel of Luke. In that story, Jesus tells a bunch of self-righteous, unloving, religious people that if you want to be people who are mature disciples, that it begins by loving your neighbor. And your neighbor is anyone who crosses your path. That's who your neighbor is. Anyone. The spiritually satisfied life looks like that. It looks like loving one another in the body. It looks like extending that love and the grace of Christ to anybody who crosses our path. Satisfied life loves his neighbor. He does good to all people, particularly those who are different. Particularly those who are different. You see, the satisfied life, the mature uh, believer's life, there, in there there's absolutely no room for anger, hostility, apathy to the needs of others, unkindness, prejudice. All of those things are the opposite of love. You see that? Loving also looks like practicing the one another's of Scripture. You should do that for a fun study once sometime. Look at uh, all the, the, the places in Scripture that speak to the phrase one another. Print out a, a simple sheet that's got about 58 or so of them. That would be something to do for a few minutes of your time. But the, the Scriptures call us to do a lot of things in the lives of one another. Let me just give you a quick survey. Serve one another. Accept one another. Strengthen one another. Help one another. Care for one another. 
Build trust with one another. Be devoted to one another. Be patient with one another. Be accountable to one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Don't slander one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Be humble toward one another. Be concerned for one another. Be at peace with one another. Comfort one another. Be kind to one another. All of those are ways of saying love one another. Love one another. The spiritually satisfied life is a life that's marked by love. For the body of Christ, for those outside of the body of Christ, for all who cross our path. It's a life marked with joy and happiness and love and grace and kindness. It's the opposite of anger. It's the opposite of hostility. It's the opposite of prejudice and all sorts of things. They're the opposite of love. Let me give you a fourth word, reach. We talked about this a bit last week when we talked about growing to go, so I won't belabor the point. But the spiritually satisfied soul is one that is resting, it's one that's walking, it's one that's loving, and it's one that is reaching. And we mean simply two things by this. Reaching simply talks about taking the gospel into our community and to the ends of the earth. In order to, we could add to that, seeing the lost saved. And then secondly, in our context Engaging others to grow to maturity in Christ. Reaching. The satisfied soul is a soul that is reaching. It's a soul that is, that is not, not indifferent to the lostness around us. It is a soul that's not apathetic to the fact that every single day people die and leave this world and go to hell. No, the satisfied soul, the mature disciple, is somebody who understands those realities and cares deeply about those things and is willing to reach out to people who find themselves in that condition and attempt to do something about it. It's the soul that says there are lost people around me. I have to say something to them. I understand that it's Christ who saves, but Christ saves through the witness of His people. And the witness of His people is the means by which Christ saves, which means I'm called to go. And it means I'm called to care. And it means the more I grow in Christ, the more mature I become, the more it matters to me that there are lost people who are dying and going to hell. And the more I'm motivated to do something about that, to find some way to reach out to them. It may look like reaching across the world into some foreign country where lostness exists and bringing the gospel via some sort of mission effort. It may look like knocking on the neighbor's door and saying, would you like to come over and have coffee tomorrow? And sitting around the table and talking about what it means to know Christ and what Christ means to you. It may mean volunteering to serve in a good news club in, uh, in Springfield Elementary. Which, by the way, training got frozen yesterday, so we didn't have it. That means it's this Saturday, so you can still come. 8.30 Saturday, small auditorium. But the spiritually satisfied soul reaches somewhere. He can't just sit still and do nothing about it. He can't just turn his head and pretend it doesn't exist. She can't sit there and say, you know what, that's somebody else's job. That second piece of that 
is reaching isn't just reaching out to the lost, but it's reaching out to other believers and engaging them to grow to maturity in Christ. That word engaging is a really important word. We didn't use the word encouraging because the word encouraging is too weak. That just sounds like coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, why don't you do this? Engaging says, hey, brother, I want to come alongside you and let's together walk with you somewhere. Let's get you to where you need to be. Let me come alongside you and maybe God will use me and use our time together to help you grow in your faith. We're a congregation that cares about growing to maturity. And we engage other people to help them do that. One of the things you're going to hear about as this year goes on is something called Partners. Partners is a one-on-one discipleship um, sort of program, if you will. I don't really like the word program, but it's, 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 it's a way of doing one-on-one discipleship. All the elders right now are and have been for some time engaged in one-on-one discipleship with different men in our congregation. Walking through this thing called Partners, which is simply a guide for growing in maturity. We've got some other ladies who have been privately also doing the same thing. Uh, my prayer is that one day uh, we'll have enough people who will have engaged for uh, those 12 weeks at least together in one-on-one discipleship that when new people come to our church, we'll be able to say, Welcome to Grace on the Ashley. We've got somebody that really wants to get to know you and help you in your walk with the Lord, and help you grow in your faith. Would you be willing to let me connect you with somebody who can have coffee with you and spend some time with you? And be used by God to help you grow in your faith. Doesn't that sound awesome? We're working toward that. Because the mature believer cares about engaging other people. And helping them to grow. That's what reaching looks like. Taking the gospel to our community and the ends of the earth. And it also looks like reaching immature believers and helping them. Engaging them. Working with them that they might grow up in their faith. Finally... The last measure is a spiritually satisfied soul looks like a soul that's giving. Giving. It gives. And you can just pop this whole thing up there for me, Ben, if you will, on give because our time is up. And this one is really, I think, rather obvious. The spiritually mature soul, the spiritually satisfied believer, is a person who loves to give joyfully of time, skills, and talents. It's a person who takes great pleasure and joy in giving generously of financial means to advance the kingdom of God locally and globally. It's the person who is able to do one and two because of number three. They trust God to supply all their needs. They trust Him. 2 Corinthians 9, 8-11 God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Skipping down, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God is talking to people who are financially poor but are giving generously. And he says to them, as you give, you know what's going to happen? As you give generously, you can trust. You can go to the bank. You can count on the fact that God is going to do something in your life. And that something that God is going to do is this. He's going to make all grace abound to you so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. One of the reasons people are stingy and miserly and when they do give, give grudgingly, is because they think they have needs that they need to fill on their own. 
When we begin to think that we have needs that we have to fill on our own, we will become miserly people who hoard our resources. But when we look up and we understand that God has made a promise that when we give generously and we give joyfully, that He will supply all our needs. That He will make all grace abound to us so that in all things, in every way, we have all that we need. All things, every way, all that you need. Again, what things are not covered under that? What needs in your life are not covered by all things in every way, all that you need? The answer is the same as the question I asked 30 minutes ago. Everything is covered under that. Everything is covered under that. Jonathan Edwards, you may have heard of him. Great pastor, now dead wrote a, a little treatise, and I encourage you to look it up online. I'll, I'll post a link to it. It's available for free that you can read at any time. It's called On the Preciousness of Time. It is well worth reading at least three times. Simply because the language might take you three times to get it fully, but because the content is so worth it. And in this, he deals with Giving, it deals with the issue of how we use our time. This is an area of giving that rarely gets much attention. And Jonathan Edwards probes to the depths of our hearts on the issue of what we do with our time. And I want to give you a couple of quotes just to whet your appetite for this in way of wrapping up this last measure of giving. Listen to what Edwards says. He says, consider, therefore, what you have done with your past time. You are now not beginning your time, but a great deal is past and gone, and all the wit and power and treasure of the universe cannot recover it. Many of you may well conclude that more than half of your time is gone. Though you should live to an ordinary age of man, your glass is more than half run. And it may be there are but a a, a few sands remaining. Your sun is past the meridian, and perhaps just setting or going into an everlasting eclipse. Consider, therefore, what account you can give of your improvements of past time. How have you let the precious golden sands of your glass run? It goes on to say, Time is with many as silver was in the days of Solomon as the stones of the street, and nothing to be accounted of. They act, he says, speaking about many people, as if time were as plenty as silver was then, and as if they had a great deal more than they needed, and knew not what to do with it. If men were as lavish of their money as they are of their time, if it were as common a thing for them to throw away their money as it is for them to throw away their time, we should think them beside themselves and not in possession of their right minds. Yet time is a thousand times more precious than money. And when it's gone, it cannot be purchased for money. It cannot be redeemed by silver or gold. Time is precious. He talks about how we use our time. He says this, remember that you're accountable to God for your time. Time is a talent given us by God. He hath set us our day. And it's not for nothing. Our day was appointed for some work. Therefore, he will at day's end call us to account. We must give account to him of the improvement of all of our time. 
We are God's servants. As a servant is accountable to his master, how he spends his time when he is set forth to work. So we are accountable to God. If men would aright consider this and keep it in mind, would they not improve their time otherwise than they do? Would you not behave otherwise than you do if you considered with yourselves every morning that you must give an account to God how you shall have spent that day? And if you considered with yourselves at the beginning of every evening that you must give an account to God how you shall have spent that evening? And he brings it home by saying this, Consider how time is, is sometimes valued by those who are coming near to the end of it. What a sense of its preciousness have poor sinners sometimes when they're on their deathbeds. Such have cried out, oh, a thousand worlds for an inch of time. Then time appears to them indeed precious. An inch of time could do them no more good than before when they were in health, supposing a like disposition to improve it, nor indeed so much. For a man's time upon a deathbed is attended with far greater disadvantage for such an improvement as will be for the good of his soul than when he is in health. Look at this. But the near approach of death makes men sensible of the inestimable worth of time. Perhaps when they were in health, they were insensible of its value as you are and were as negligent of it. But how are their thoughts altered now on their deathbeds? It is not because they are deceived that they think time to be of such value, but because their eyes are opened. And it's because you are deceived and blind that you don't think as they do right now. Well, read on the preciousness of time by Jonathan Edwards. And it will transform how you think about how you give your time and what you do with it. He says in that treatise, when you look back on all the time that you're wasted for the the years of your youth, he talks about, and how little was done of any value, he says, wouldn't it have even been better if you just slept through the whole thing than what you actually did because it was that useless? The spiritually satisfied soul is a soul that gives. Yes, It gives financially with joy because it understands that God owns everything and we're just stewards and we love to give joyfully of our resources because we understand God meets all of our needs. But it also is a soul that gives of time and energy and talents and gifts. Resting, walking, loving, reaching and giving. That's the front of the Lego box for us. That's what the spiritually satisfied soul looks like. That is what we're we're trying to produce in people as they come into the life of this body and spend time here at Grace on the Ashley. We hope that however long they spend time here, when they leave this place, they look more like the Millennium Falcon at the end. There are people who are more giving and more reaching and more loving and more restful and more walking in obedience to the Lord. And that's the goal for your life as well. It's not just about what we're trying to produce in other people. It's what we believe God's trying to produce in each of us. So as we kind of launch into a new year, think about yourself. Does, does that picture 
Is it a picture of you? When you think of where you stand in your walk with the Lord, is it, do the words like rest come to mind? And love? And walking? And reaching? And giving? These are our mission measures. It's our measuring tape. It's our Lego box. Examine ourselves this morning. Father, we give thanks to you for being a good, good father to us. For being one who is at work in each of our lives. For being one who is at work in true and clear and powerful ways in the life of this body. We thank you for who you've made us. We thank you for the mission you've set us out to do. We thank you for the values that you have planted deep in our hearts that we care deeply about. And we thank you for the privilege that we have of serving you and doing your work in this community and around the world. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we think through these, these simple words this morning, these simple measures, this simple portrait of what the satisfied spiritual life looks like, what the spiritually hungry who are now satisfied look like, what the mature disciple looks like, we pray that two things would happen. That first you would motivate us to be about the work of producing that in the lives of one another and any who cross our path. But also that we would examine our own hearts this morning and ask the question, how do we measure up? How do we measure up? And identify in our hearts this morning, Lord, as we launch into 2018, which areas of the portrait are weak? Do we need this year work in the area of love? Do we need work in the area of giving? Have we been apathetic and uncaring toward the lostness around us and we need work in the area of reaching? Maybe, Lord, we've been uh, living lives that are just filled with anxiety and fear, running at a frenetic pace, and we need rest for our souls this year. You convict us where we're weak, Lord. And help us this year to grow in these areas, to have that spiritual hunger satisfied through you by your all-sufficient word. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.